Hello, welcome to Circuit and Cure, a podcast where we discuss scenic automation and other interesting tech. I'm Gareth Connor. And I'm Harry Bogard. Harry, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So we got three topics on the docket tonight. We're, uh, we've got, uh, we want to talk about a, a new product. Well, it was a custom job first, but maybe someday it'll be an actual product product. It was pretty cool. It could be soon. If yeah. you place an order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so, so true, right? If you wave a pile of money, it's definitely a product. <laughs> but a thing called the Push Stick Zero. And then we're going to talk about uh, your experience out at Autodesk University um, last fall, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. around LDI time-ish. Is that right? Same time. Same time. Yeah. LDI time, exactly. And then everybody's favorite topic, risk assessment and risk reduction. <laughs> but stay tuned. I think that one actually will, actually will be fun. Uh, we've got a pretty crazy project to, to dig into the details on. But first things first, let's talk a little about this uh, crazy push stick zero. Maybe if you could kind of set the stage first and see, say, what were the requirements? Why, why, yet an, why does the world need yet another deck winch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so we had a, a rather discerning client of ours who we've worked with a few times before um, had an event, um, and they were looking for a low-profile winch. Um, so due to the spatial constraints of the uh, event venue, uh, there wasn't really any space to put a winch off stage as we typically do, like well, with our Postic V2, you know, you'll mount it somewhere in the wings and just right. run your loop of aircraft cable under your deck. So your deck can be really low and your big honking machine can be... Kind of stands up like a refrigerator off in the wings. Yeah, but yeah. not bothering anyone over there. In this case, we didn't have that luxury. Um, so we, because of all that, we, the choice was made and they were like, oh, let's put a machine in the deck. So, so then, it has to fit within in, the show deck. Within the show deck, okay. which I think started at eight inches and then in, in classic fashion with this client just kept shrinking. And yeah, I was going to say, it didn't grow, right? <laughs> no, no, it went <laughs> the, were, the way you don't want it to go. <laughs> and they were like, you know, actually, we decided there's more room for the machinery. <laughs> and so at some point I was like, you know, at six inches, I, I don't think I can engineer it any tighter than that, at least on this timeline. So let's stick to keep it under six inches. And we did. So it was six, in, six inch thick profile for the winch had to drop into a six inch cavity exactly yep that is pretty tight it was yeah still is <laughs> <laughs> didn't get any bigger <laughs> okay so that's and that's cool so a very low profile winch uh zero fleet yeah zero fleet because we're we, we were trying to fit it into so we're not a scenery company, as I'm sometimes reminded by our operations manager. So we, we were building it into the decks. So we kind of, in the scope of this project bid, decided we would build the decks that contained the automation. So we wanted to limit that to the least number of decks because that's just less scenic fabrication that we don't like doing um, in our scope. Uh, so we tried to fit it into two to two platforms. And then so in order to keep those the, the aircraft cable running in the same path and not have to deal with fleeting issues that you have with a non-zero fleet deck winch, um, we're like, eh, why not do a zero fleet? Yeah, design? it's just cooler all the way around. It's right? cooler. Yeah. 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 And we like it. <laughs> Absolutely. And so what's your powertrain then? So the powertrain, this was a, another uh, requirement by this discerning client was for dual powertrain. Um, so two motors uh, in the event and two drives and two everything the whole way. Totally um, redundant. Yeah. 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 Um, two of each animal in the arc. Um, <laughs> But that way, you know, if you lose one, you got the other. <laughs> right. uh, so, it, yeah, if one drive or one motor were to burst into flames, the other one would still be able to back drive the other one and complete the move. Um, so the the sort of PT construction ended up being, uh, or where, where we landed, was a, a drive shaft uh, or a, mo a drum shaft. So drum between two bearings uh, with the shaft going between it. 
Um, and then on either end of that shaft would be a motor uh, with a belt stage, uh, so driven on two separate belt stages, so the drum could be driven from either side. Okay. Uh, and then on one end of that uh, shaft, I'll say, what we turned it into, it. what we decided was well, that'll be a tube with an Acme nut. So the zero fleet mechanism would be a lead screw that would bury itself into the, the shaft tube. Oh, very cool. So then you have basically a, a stationary narwhal spike, so a stationary lead screw that's like attached rigidly to the frame and the drum feeds over top, like hides that lead screw when it's paid all the way out and then when it's paid all the way in or vice versa, then it, it totally exposes the lead screw. Yep, exactly. Okay. And so the benefit of that is because we're trying to sh shove this into a platform. We obviously need to frame out that platform. So we need to try and minimize the amount of framing we're removing in order to put this winch in the machine. So I was trying to, I was trying to target to keep it under like four feet um, gotcha. so that it's not a crazy span between our framing members. Um, I think we ended up uh, like 45 inches by 23 inches by six inches tall. So yeah. pretty, pretty tight package. Um, all in yeah, all. that is definitely. And what did you, I assume then servo required for that. Yeah. To get it into that six inch. Yep. We ended up going with a couple 700 watts. So we're like roughly one horsepower servo, uh, servo motors. Um, I believe uh, the infamous Jack Miller likes to remind me that it's 747 watts. Cause I always like to round to 750 <laughs> watts. And I always get an angry email. <laughs> you animal. <laughs> How could you? What about my three watts? <laughs> 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 Those are bonus watts. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, we just round up. Yeah, okay. So yeah. dual one horsepower servos, Gross. which yeah, and what is that? One horse amongst friends. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then speed wise, what are we looking at? So we actually this one w could kick. I when we started designing this thing, I wasn't really sure how long our deck track was. I just started designing the winch and wondering that it might be forty feet wide across the stage. I was like, oh well, you know, it's easier to have a bunch of speed and then not use it. Um, so this thing moves at 44 inches a second. Uh, Ooh, that's nice. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a brisk clip. Um, and it's on a, I think a four and a half inch drum. Uh, so those, so it's rotating pretty quick. I think it was like 230 RPM uh, on output. Uh, you get like 134 pounds of line pull, but because it's a servo motor, you can get three times the torque for momentary periods like startup. So you can get up to 400 pounds of pull. Nice. So it moves. So a four inch winch drum, what? size cable then are you wrapping on that uh we ended up going with three sixteenths mm -hmm. thought being eighth is a little springy yeah. quarter starts to just get really hard to wrap around something that small so three sixteenths split the difference gotcha <laughs> no that makes good sense yeah because eighth inch like you said gets real weedy and spongy and you and attaching to it like via set screws like if you if you've yeah. got a big hole like you're like is it really how much is it really biting versus just shredding that aircraft cable yeah 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 well, that makes sense and then we got the dual motors, redundant motors there where we're only really powering one at a time. Like we power the primary and then if that one fails, we power the backup. But that means we can't have brakes, right? That's true. No brakes, no problems as long as you're flat. <laughs> so, yeah, and I thought there was like, uh, you know, in order to, have to not to avoid the, the control complexity of dealing with brakes on both of them and having to sequence those or deal with some kind of failover switch just no bricks because it's a flat application and there's plenty of friction in the system so uh when the dog gets to its position it's not really going to go anywhere <laughs> yeah. it didn't cool so like so many of these projects that you hear us tell stories about we had uh, a limited amount of time <laughs> to, to get it done right yep, yep. we had a limited kinda... amount of time and then the client waited a while and then we went <laughs> <laughs> yeah it went hard yeah and so 
all brand new design, but of course, like like anyone that wants to do uh, in such a situation, try to pull in some, at least some design concepts and stuff from other machines, like stuff that we knew worked well, bring those in and then we're, limit how many brand new things you were doing. So what sort of things were you able to kind of crib from other designs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so if you look at a revolver, we've got the same kind of bearings going on uh, in, in this machine. Uh, so, it's, and it's a similar concept in, ter in terms of like the powertrains on sort of a water jet, tab and slot, captive fastener, tray. Um, and then it's, it's riding on bearings as it does its motion. In the, in the instance of the revolver, we're tensioning it into the side of a turntable. Here we're driving it with a lead screw. Um, and then similarly, we kind of framed out in a similar way where it's sort of a rectangular tray uh, with some lifting points along the edges and other utility holes and useful mounting doodads in the base plate um, and whatnot. And then uh, kind of cribbing ideas from the, our, one of our favorite machines, the Pushstick Mini, uh, we've got a belt... Uh, belt-driven uh, powertrain stage from the motor to the drums, uh, the drum shaft. Um, and we also kind of cribbed the idea of our more recent edition of the Postage Mini that has a unibody aluminum tensioner. So we machine this kind of complicated part that allows us to reeve cable through a couple pulleys onto a big aluminum block. And then we yank that block back via a couple threaded rods to uh, tension the system so you have that on board on the machine. Yeah, which is always nice to have the tensioner on board so you don't have to mess with trying to tension your drive cable somewhere else in the system. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. Yeah, in this in this case, it might have been a little bit easier if we'd done that, but I think for a long term, it's a better machine because you know, yeah. it's all in one place. Yeah, it's great. Like once you're sitting in front of the machine, you can just deal with it there. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And is that literally the same unibody tensioner or did you just kind of use that as inspiration and design a different one? Yeah, use it as inspiration design, design yeah. a different one. So, But it's the same concept of using, you know, some some tight clearance through holes for the for the thread rod and we had these uh plastic bearings that we really like uh that are they're like the 80 20 bearings is that right yeah, yeah. They're, ju they're just like a linear plastic friction bearing um so it just it just slides between in an aluminum uh, water jetted slot um so it's the, the block of aluminum is kind of captive with these tab these plastic tabs and it just gets yanked back works yeah. pretty simple works really nice yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. So that helps, I'm sure, a little bit to take some of the, at least you, some of those different design elements, you don't have to start completely over from scratch, but. At least it like reduces some anxiety. You're like, I know this <laughs> that work. part's going to work. work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's still the element of like the tolerancing, even like going back to the, the tensioner. The first time we did that on the push stick mini, I think we ended up putting it on the machine like three times to just dial in how, how much, much clearance. We were clearance we needed on yeah. either side. And. Actually, I don't think we've ran into that on this one. I, think I was going to ask. Yeah, so did, did we have to do that again? I don't know if, if Breezy just adjusted it to what it was because he's just that good or if, if, if we just, you know. Nailed it. Nailed it the first try like we, we always do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every time. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even bother turning it on. You know that thing's going to work. Just ship it. Yeah, just ship it. Do it live. <laughs> do it live. <laughs> So that was the stuff that we had borrowed from new designs, but there was a, or old designs, I should say, but there was a bunch of new stuff in there too that you were trying out that for some pretty cool ideas. I like the, I love your detail of uh, doing the buried lead screw inside of the drum shaft. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was generally, I think a good concept. Um, and I would, I would do it again. Um, there were, there were some implementation details that made it, tricky um i think it's something we've run into with other machines where because we do our 
um, captive fastener, aluminum plate construction. Um, it you wouldn't think that this would be a problem, but the thickness of the plate stacking up can create issues with precision, uh, you know, mechanical parts. So in this case, we we where the mo uh, rotating portion, uh, the Acme nut was on the PT sled uh, was spaced up by a combination of the linear, it was sitting on linear bearings and then those linear bearings were attached to a piece of three eighths aluminum plate. But in reality, the bearings were slightly higher and the plate was another 40,000 thicker. So I think we all told we were slightly under, or maybe slightly over a 16th higher than we were in perfect cab model land. Um, so there's a little bit there. There was a little bit of misalignment, which becomes more severe as you get the the Acme nut really close to the place where it's deaded off to the frame, because um, then obviously that's kind of going to cock it at a more severe angle. Um, so the first time we ran it, we heard a little bit of squeaking in the Acme nut as we started to get into that, and probably part part of that might be no lube the first time you run it. So you got to yeah. put some put some lith white lithium on there. Um, and also the brass is, will sort of self-clearance itself. And as, as you run out, that, that angle becomes less severe. And you, you're like, oh, it's running fine. Um, yeah. But there's things to watch out for. And, you know, maybe just using oversized holes is an easy enough way to rectify that. There yeah. And some material thickness, but. Right. Because I guess that, that Acme screw, it doesn't need to be a lot. Like that could even, that mount could even be on slots or something, right? Like cause yeah. the, the vertical alignment is not critical to the function of the machine. I mean, it is function critical to the functioning of the machine but like it could there's not a lot of force up and down so you could be able to ride that up on some slots and all it needs to do is not spin yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep that's the key yeah what well, i think and we, not pull itself off of the frame not pull itself but you can like the, the we ended up using like a, a a flange mount shaft collar so it's like a shaft collar but you can mount it to a surface like at a 90 degree and so like you really need one bolt in there to to yeah. keep that thing from spinning. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that that was, I thought that was cool that the, that you used the hollow drive shaft and, um, yeah. And then embedded the Acme nut inside that drive shaft and then use that. Yeah. Yeah. And it really saved a lot of space. <laughs> yeah. And then the other new, some of the other new things that you had in there is that we often do, and we've, I think we talked about this on a, oh, I'm sure we talked about it in a previous episode, but like we, we do these weldless aluminum drums and we've been through a few different iterations on, of them. You know, the most recent one for like the Spotline Mini, we can reduce the number of parts from five parts being a uh, four spoke parts and then one outer shell of the drum, the actual drum surface. And you, you fucking took that to 11. Like you're like, I don't need your spokes at all. <laughs> I'll just do one part. <laughs> I can name that Winstrom in one part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was, uh, it was partially driven by the lead time thing. That I, was, I was just worried about, like, what can we get in the door with components and, and stock because we've, we've run into challenges, usually not with aluminum tube, but, but sometimes that, that ends up being a challenge. But also just the time spent machining and R&Ding a new drum. It's, it, it, we never, that's a really hard one to nail the first time because there's so many ops that compound and like if you mess up one thing, you got to start from scratch and that turns into a lot of time. Um, so I was thinking, what if we just did a tube? So the tube is a big piece of alum uh, aluminum and I knew I had to be, have a small outer diameter. So I just was looking for what kind of appropriate shaft bushings could fit on the inside of an aluminum tube. So if I took four and a half inch aluminum, raw aluminum stock, um, you can get like a, a, uh, taper or screw clamp bushing uh, for an inch and a half shaft that basically fits right inside the two and nine sixteenths bore, which if you take one inch wall, four and a half inch OD <laughs> aluminum tube, it's slightly undersized. So you can bore that out nice and uh, 
So yeah, so you just so you, one inch wall two, one inch wall two. Probably <laughs> not what you need from a drum crushing perspective, but no, no, no. But, but yeah, it, it fits spatially. Yeah, absolutely, no. <laughs> you yeah. don't have to run any calcs on that. <laughs> and, yeah, and, that's awesome. And Breezy was like, "Yeah, it's it's the most rigid sh- uh, drum I've ever fixtured up." I was like, yeah, "I bet." <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And I remember, I think. I think I'm not mixing up stories here, but I remember Breezy coming into the into the office holding the first one that he had like screwed up in some way, right? I, like he had done something, whatever, like something was messed up. I'm like, oh, that kind of sucks. So you got to start over, huh? And he's like, yeah, 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 I'll have to do another one. Like, I don't know. How long is that going to take? He's like, I don't know. It's like eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, why did you even bring the wrong one over here? Just go cut this. Just go do it again. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like the, the crossing holes for the, for the gack. Yeah. It right. was like, ah, oh, this one walked a little bit. And I was like, we, uh, yeah, just do it again. It's eight minutes, whatever. <laughs> but it made it to your point, like that design made it super fast to machine. Cause you were just taking like the raw stock and yeah, it was like turning it cut to length, bore the two ends, groove it. Bob's yeah. your uncle. <laughs> right. Very fast. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm happy about how that one turned out. Probably could save on material in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should do all drums, one inch wall, just to shut everybody up. <laughs> Not externally. Nobody, nobody really complains externally, just internally. Be like, nope, it's totally fine. Don't worry about the, don't, don't worry about the drum wall. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we were trying to avoid creating yet another junction box like a machine mount junction box and this had some pretty severe space requirements in terms of the height and so on and we had no stock junction box to stick on there so instead what did you do to get around that yeah so you you pointed me towards some uh surface mount irc connectors so like all of our signal and motor cable we typically use the big industrial rectangular connectors um and we usually we, we put those uh the hoods on the side of uh, our, J, our j boxes which are like powder coated steel um, but in this case, I didn't have time to design a new one, and none of our stock ones would fit between like the, our platform flame, framing and the deck um, for the number, the four connectors we needed, two motor, two signal. Um, so instead, we just went with these these surface mount connectors. So they just literally bolt on, and then they have uh, ta- threaded uh, land holes on the side, so you put like a, a cord grip on the side of the connect of the hood, uh, feed your cable in, and then wire up your insert, and then just screw it into this cast aluminum body. Um, so it's pretty simple. Yeah, and then those, those housings themselves just bolt onto your frame, which I thought was really, I've used them to great effect at various times for like quick and dirty things. Although they, you said they didn't really work out pisser on this one like that yeah i mean i think they i think they worked fine once we got it all all set and said and done but i think it was it was a bit of work just because of how many cables were ending in such a small space because of the window we had to feed them through so and then figuring out we like we needed enough service loop in the cable leading up to the connector that you could pull the the insert out and still like play with the pins if for some reason they came unseated or you need to service the thing um but then run it back when you push that back in and connect it you didn't want a ton of slack slack sitting in the machine so it it got reterminated a few times because we were trying to like dial that in to just what you needed which if if we had done a junction box on there then we could have left that service loop inside the j box which would have been a cleaner easier way to do it yeah Yeah. it was just one more thing i didn't want to have to order (laughs) i was getting lazy (laughs) (laughs) well yeah and i feel like the i was like yeah just use these things i was like yeah Kind of. They kind of worked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also different and different scary. Yeah. <laughs> different is scary. I just fear the unknown. <laughs> um, 
So some of the other things, I, I think we've touched on these actually. It's in our outline here, but I think we touched on some of this stuff already. The, the things that were hard to nail the first time. I think we should make mention that like the machine then I think went to, how did it go together? I, from the from the office view, it looked like it went together pretty smoothly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for the most part, there, it was it was pretty good. Um, so we, we talked about like the, the lead screw alignment being a little off. Um, <laughs> the other thing I ran into was was how to reeve it because of, just the way I design ended up the order of operations I took to design the machine as quick as possible. I ended up designing the whole PT system and aligning all the pulleys just sitting in space, um, just sort of floating there. And then I was like, oh, now I'll just add the aluminum framing to to make that those to hold it all together where it needs to be. Yeah. At one point, I think I missed to circle back and make sure you could actually get your hands on all the pulleys and <laughs> reeve them through. So there's one pulley specifically on the bottom side of the tensioner. That is like trapped in a valley between like three pieces of aluminum that made it. You can reeve it. It is not. It was not fun at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was like forty five minutes for Rod and me, and just staring at it like, well, if you, if you, uh, <laughs> let me go get a hanger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you, I did it with an Amstel leader, like double. You know, you, you did the, it's never a good sign when you're like e taping your gack onto yeah, a piece onto of another rope thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> And then you're like, well, if I rotate the pulley, it kind of gets stuck in the groove and it has to go around. <laughs> I don't Give me a smaller piece of gaff tape. I just want to like just tape the end a little bit so it gets stuck in there, but it'll peel off as soon as it hits my finger. No, no, don't put a flag. The flag's going to get caught. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it's that's not a good place to be. Um, so how did you get out of that? <laughs> well, thankfully, we have a, have a 4X CNC machine. Uh, so we just milled a new side plate that had this big relief cut in the ah. side to access for fingers and putting cable in and then it was much better um <laughs> nice but yeah and that just replaced one of the water jet plates exactly and and part of where the framing ended up there was that there was sort of a constructional concern because the the cable coming off the drum takes a hard 90 degree turnaround to diverter pulleys and so there's pretty big resultant load on there and so like the two upright pieces of framing which were kind of both capturing the tensioner and also trying to they were trying to resolve that that strong lateral force on the pulleys um, but ultimately we didn't need it and you also can't have it there or else you can't use the machine, which is kind of important. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. An easy one. Like you can, as you're describing it, like it, it, it's such an easy thing to miss, especially when you're moving fast that you've got kind of designed all of the mechanism there. And like you said, you're just kind of, I don't know, like, like papering on framing in the drawing, right? You're like just yeah. trying to close it up where you can i think the timeline ended up being because we like we worked backwards from shipping obviously and we were like oh this is the day we have to send a water jet out and i think the i think the day prior we had a design review and at that point i had figured out like all the concepts and everyone was like okay cool ship it but i hadn't actually detailed any of the framing for like all the water jet tab and slots so i think i just stayed here from like whenever the shot the workday ended i think we were already at six o'clock at that point until I finished at some point, like one or two in the morning oh. and then shipped it and then sent it off after like after a review in the morning. I'm glad I did that because I caught a few things, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. not all of them, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a push for sure. Yeah, not ideal, but, you know, sometimes you got to do it. Yep, 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 yep. Came out, came out good. Thanks. Um, And then the drive shaft, Um, you ended up, we started on an aluminum drive shaft and then you swapped to steel. Yeah. So, so the thing we ran into another challenge of, you never done this before and, Oh, look, that doesn't, that doesn't work for this reason. Uh, so 
trying to use a tube shaft, I my thought went to aluminum because it's pretty easy to machine. And relative to our uh, loading condition, I wasn't really concerned about uh, the strength we needed. Um, but what, what happened was, uh, so we ended up with inch and a half, three-eighths wall aluminum tube as our shaft. Um, and it's an extruded product, and it comes in slightly undersized of a true inch and a half. So rather than being 1500, it was like 1490 or something like that. Um, so when it went into the bearings on either side of the PT sled, it had a little clearance, like to, you know, eight, eight or nine thousandths of uh, space in there. And then, Which is pretty hefty for a drive shaft, right? Reasonably so, yeah. yeah like, yeah. it fit in the bearings way easier than <laughs> we're used to. <laughs> Usually there's at least a soft a mallet tap. involved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're like, oh, cool, easy to assemble. But then once you tension it in one, so on either end of that sled, you've, you're cantilevering off the tube end of the shaft to the pulley stage going into the motors. So it's getting yanked back on either side, which is trying to like make kind of like drum, a bow, like right? a smile. Yeah, yeah. And then on, you compound that with the the drum in between that smile is pulling in the opposite direction. So, so you're really, really smiling, at smiling it. it. And then on top of that, you have that compliance in that eight thousandths in the bearing, which given that small distance is it actually could turn a lot. So essentially what you're doing is you're point loading on the inner race of the bearing. So what that turned into is kind of catching the ball bearings uh, I think on the on the ping aircraft cable offside between that point on the on the on the shaft, so it would pass balls from one side to the other, which kind of manifested in if you put your finger on it, you hear and feel a grumbling in the bearings, like, mm. and then occasionally it would make a pop, which sounded distinctly like like belts, like belt noise, belt yeah. noise. So we at first because we we're belt driven, we we're like ah, it's probably the belts, and then we're like no, it's actually those are seated great and we like we retensioned and retensioned them like three times and then we're like put our finger on the bearing and you're like oh that's <laughs> where this noise is coming from um and so so then we were like okay we gotta probably replace that we, we either need to get some oversized tube but then we were also worried about the strength of the tube so we're like what's stronger than aluminum steel steel, but steel yeah. by three times for the same shape so we're like that's great now we just need a precision tube and uh dom tube happens to be pretty tight tolerances in terms of the od and id so we got a stick of that um and that came in like six thousand six thousand heavy so like one five oh six turned it down a little bit on the end put it back in and it was great nice yeah yeah that's cool yeah, yeah. and i think ultimately it's probably a little bit happier to be have a steel drive shaft anyway yeah, in life, ductilities, the yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then I think you know this one was dual motor and um, dual motor seven hundred watts, and you need some of that wattage just to be able to back drive through the the redundant motor. Right? Yeah, like we never really know how much. I mean, we we probably should have calculated, but that was low on our priority list. Like yeah. what, what that resistance really is. Um, but for a stock machine, we'd probably drop to like our the same thing that we do on the push stick mini, right? Of yeah. Like a 400 watt, 120 volt version. Yeah. Machine. It'd be pretty nice. Wall be, power. Yeah. It'd be pretty sweet because it'd be like a, well, we're calling it the push stick zero because it's both zero fleet and then kind of, kind of zero height, if you will. Like it fits in your deck. Um, and it'd be a pretty sweet little package. Yeah. So. Yeah. You order it, you know. We'll, we'll make, make it. it. <laughs> yeah. Now you'll know how many people listen to the podcast. You know, if you get people ordering off menu like this, like I'd like a push stick zero, please. <laughs> like, oh, you're you are in the know. Ask for it by name. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> cool. That's great. So uh, the next uh, topic on the agenda here is the Autodesk University. Um, and this was 
back in the LDI timeframe, and we've been trying to find opportunities uh, that make sense uh, where we can invest some time and money and have people go off and learn more things. And Autodesk University seemed like a good uh, pitch because we use the heck out of uh, sp specifically Fusion, but also a little bit of AutoCAD here and there. And Eagle. And Eagle. They're right, right, right. Absolutely. And Eagle. Um, and But Fusion is such a table stakes tool that we use in our machine design. It yeah. seemed like, yeah, let's go let's go send some people and learn more about any intricacies of fusion that we don't necessarily know. Cause anything we can pick up for a couple of days of sitting in a conference hall would be well worth the time spent. Um, so you headed out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I went with uh, Kate uh, and we both took in a bunch of stuff and um, yeah, I think, I think I learned. Uh, Where was it? It was in Las Vegas on the strip. On this, <laughs> yeah, which was whelming. <laughs> that is whelming. Was that? It couldn't have been your first time to Vegas. Oh, it was. Oh, it was your first time to Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's big. It is big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of drunk people, all the time. All, any, any time, day or night. Yeah, yeah. It is a, it's a town. It is. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Best to probably leave that there. <laughs> yep. um, and how big of a conference is this Autodesk University? So I think it was like uh, more than 10,000 people. Um, and oh, then that's it, big. Yeah. And then at one point they, they had like an entertainment meetup and that was a much, much smaller group of like maybe 20 people if I'm being generous. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like reminded, oh yeah, entertainment is a very small portion of people who use Autodesk. And, and that was a general theme throughout the conference was like, like, this is all for manufacturing and industrial engineering and architecture. Like everyone has their own little camps. I guess entertainment is most interesting because we're the users who are probably most likely to use a ton of their like multiple of their products and whereas i yeah. feel like everyone else kind of stays in their own lane in one product yeah mm. which is really just like it was, it was a nice pat on the back of like oh yeah we're we have to know a lot more about like both mechanical and electrical and probably understand a little bit about software in the way in a way that like general industry people don't don't yeah yeah because yeah, they can specialize kind of dive deep where we tend to spread out broad yeah i don't know anything well but i know <laughs> a little bit about a few a things yeah <laughs> preach yeah <laughs> So what were some of the cool things that you did learn about? Because there were, there were a couple in there that were pretty neat. Yeah, I, thought, I sat in some, some pretty sweet sessions. Uh, one of the bigger ones that had uh, immediate applicability to us is derived components. Um, and, and, and it's like such a really useful feature in Fusion 360 that I can't believe we didn't know about before. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Because yeah. they kind of they bury it. Um, mm. but so, so there's, uh, most people are familiar with, if you're a Fusion 360 user, with linked components so that's where you might have a, a model and you want to bring it into another model uh, and maintain that reference to the to the first one so say we have a part in one of our machines and then i want to use that part in a in a new design so that's like so we're making the same part again you, you know we're pulling that in and that's linked to the old model um, but sometimes for for cam specifically we want to go the other way so we have a big uh, model assembly and we want to take a component a small subcomponent out of that and make it in its own file because it's just easier to cam in that way um if we if we do the cam in the same we can do the cam in the in the in cam the big, in the, big machine design in the big machine design but it involves like turning off every other component um and then and i if i like me as a designer i add another component in and then say breezy over the machine shop as the person probably doing the cam does like i i save the model suddenly some other thing pops up in his cam workspace and he's it, it's just it just turns into a bit big of a mess of like okay which who's who's got control of the model right now and right. who's saving what 
Um, so it's easier to just kind of export like spit that out. It out. Yeah. And the way we did that before is we would just do a dumb export. So no referentiality, which is unfortunate for when you have this cool parametric software, you, you're just making it completely like frozen in time, time yeah. like this version. And we, so we typically have like a cam folder and I would just export this component and then I would label it like this component, make this many from this kind of stock. Um, but which is which works fine. Um, but then if but I if change, you make a change, if I make a change, then I got to get rid of that. And if you say he's already started camming on that, that's just lost productivity. He's got to start from scratch, oh, um, which sucks, which is not great. Uh, where so derived components are like that same concept, except it's referencing the original model. Um, so you you kind of have to navigate through this uh, sort of obscure menu and it says create derived component. Um, you select that component and then it basically spits out a new model, which you save as. And that maintains that referential leg. Now, every time I save the mother, uh, the, the master model, that won't necessarily mean that it has to update to the new one. But if I do a milestone, which is like a relatively new feature in Fusion, then that will pop up a little update that will say in the, in the other, in the derived model that says, hey, there's a new version. When, do you want to see that? And so if you've already cammed that part, and then I say, uh, you know, something that you might not physically visually see that like I opened a bore six thou um, yeah. because of like a tolerancing on the part but because I read the manufacturer spec finally after originally <laughs> just drawing it on size. Just it happens. Yeah. Just hypothetically. Yeah. I'll say this never happened. But like (laughs) if I was so sloppy, uh, (laughs) then then it'll set a it'll send a milestone and then it'll say, hey, like and I can name that milestone like open bearing for proper sizing. And then he'll do 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 do. And then it will just read tool. You can regenerate the tool path and all that work that you spent camming that already is just adjusted to the new geometry. And so in that case, does it does it automatically regenerate the cam for that bore or does it just like wipe out that operation for for that bore and flag it as like you you need to regenerate this tool path uh it won't it won't automatically regenerate but if you if you just right click regen it will do that it'll do it and provided okay. there, there are certain parameters like if you yeah. if you make new lines or con, like especially we're doing mostly 2d 2d line work con like we're just following a path and milling the outside of something like if you if you made it a new facet it might not necessarily pick that up you might need to reselect your lines but for the most part, like it's say you take a circle and open it to a bigger circle. Yeah. It'll figure that out. That's yeah, that's pretty dope. Yeah. And I think it's better that it just, yeah, that it gives it the, I assume like the little warning sign icon next to it or something yep. right? that shows. Yeah. Which is good because it shows you, shows you that something has changed. So if you want to do a different approach on that operation, you have the opportunity to see it. It's not automatically doing it. And they've done a number of things with the sort of the pre-visualization of your camming mm. where that, that flag it more readily now, okay. just, just in the, the way they kind of color code things is useful. Oh, that's cool. Um, that to me, that's worth the price of admission right there. Right? Like, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like this feature that's been around for a while, like you had no idea. I've never, never heard of it until you brought that bit of knowledge back. If it saves us from recutting like 10 parts, I think it paid for at least one of our admissions. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, and then they, there were some other really cool sessions I sat in on. They're, they're real, uh, Fusion 360 is clearly where Autodesk is putting a lot of its resources in terms of developing new features. Um, so they've, they've expanded a lot in the cam in terms of like tool libraries. I sat in some cool session on adaptive tool pathing. So it was like making this crazy contoured injection mold and like all the weird sweeps and draft angles that you have to deal with and like figuring out which tools are, which kind of um, CPU based like tool pathing uh, tool or figuring out which tool path uh, method you want to do for a given situation and which one's going to be most, uh, 
most efficient, most in, terms efficient of, yeah. in terms of runtime. Yeah. Because yeah. like you could see variances on, on complicated parts from like, okay, if you do it this way, it, you know, it'll get you this accurate, but it'll take 25 minutes. But if you do it this way, it'll be even more accurate, but it's going to take 10 hours. So <laughs> you right. tell you, me yeah. which you one decide. you want. Yeah. Um, there was, they were really pushing generative design, which maybe isn't super applicable to us, but is a really cool concept. And I think it's a few, maybe a couple of years away from being really approachable for us. And that, so that's where you're, you're setting uh, loading parameters uh, you, for our for our purposes where we would set a loading condition say like I need to support between this point and this point and then it's going to tell you okay here's here's a bunch of shapes of things that could support that hmm. um, so it's going to iterate like you know you could do as many as 10,000 versions of it but it's usually gonna, you're going to spe- specify how many w- you give me the top six or top 10 or top 20 options and then you can look at those and then you can further set other parameters to like make it into something i can actually machine as opposed to the spindly like organic Mm. looking part but that that could be a cool thing for the future potentially in our water jet construction is like i need to support this bearing this motor and you know between these points and it's going to resist this kind of load and then it just like here's the plate you need or the minimum amount of plate you need now right and now yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so that's so that's. Or pretty here are ten different options, right? Here, are 10 yeah. Different which options. one? Yeah, looks like the path closest to what's in your head. Yeah. yeah. Less material, less money. So that's always good. Um, they right after the conference, they had included exporting DFS, DXFs, which has been really useful in terms of getting um just like laser cut files out of out of Fusion and other kind of cutting operations. And those no longer have like the weird um paper space model space problem. Yes. Uh, yeah, they, they've, they've, they've behaved much better. And in, in, in terms of not doing the, you don't have to deal with like the, the issues with like the blocks that get spit out of like export layout from yeah, CAD, export layout. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the, or the completely inconsistent scalings. Like sometimes it keeps the scale. Sometimes it goes one back to one to one when you export layout, like who knows anyone's guess <laughs> better check before you set it off. To get cut. So that solves those issues. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's some really cool stuff, which I was definitely over in my head between pushing designs back and forth between Eagle and fusion. Yeah. Um, so integrating your circuit board design with your physical mechanism design or electrical design. Yeah. Which is pretty great. Cause we, like, as you alluded to, we use Eagle for our circuit board design. Right. Um, and I know Cody's been digging into that recently with all the showstopper stuff that he's been doing. Yeah. And it's pretty nice to be able to, the process used to be both before Autodesk owned Eagle and then even in the early days of them owning Eagle that you would like design the circuit board in Eagle and then dump it out as a DXF and then take it into Fusion and then try to use that DXF as a sketch to, you know, extrude out a circuit board and stuff. And these days from what I've seen, I haven't used it myself, but it looks pretty hot that you can just, it's pretty close to one button push to get out of Eagle and into, um, Fusion, and with the exception being there that if you have components that don't have a 3D model in Eagle, then you've got to do some work on your end to to put those uh, 3D components in. But many of those components now are available from DigiKey and Mouser. Like you can download their CAD libraries uh, for Eagle and they include the 3D models and then you can see the actual part in your sheet metal design or in your machine design or whatever, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and they are showing some pretty cool cross-functionality in terms of pushing designs either way from Eagle to Fusion or Fusion back to Eagle. So in the example that I was seeing in the in the lecture, they were, they were you know, it was it was like a hand tool design and there was a circuit board inside and they were saying oh these two resistors are a little too close together and they did a simulation in the simulation space in fusion that said like oh the heat dissipation was going to cause issues on this board um so in in fusion they just pull them apart and then they update back to eagle and then it just updates your circuit board which is really cool yeah yeah 
Yeah, that's awesome to really use the the power of both pieces of software because you're doing a holistic design. I mean, that, that which I think it's a lot of times what we're looking at too, not to that level of sophistication, but like being able to, since we work across those disciplines so often, yeah, that, you know, that we're doing electrical design as well as the mechanical design all at the same time to be able to address both concerns in one piece. No, I guess not in one piece of software, but be able to have those two pieces of software talk to each other. Yeah, and it yeah. doesn't matter whether it's one user or multiple users. So like Christian right. could be working on a circuit board and pushing it into my design, or I could be doing both of those and pushing it back and forth. But either way, it doesn't seem like we've run into any snags on, on that yeah. workflow, which is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Hard to do. Yeah, it should greatly reduce the number of times that I used to design like an enclosure where, you know, the sheet metal was a 16th of an inch off of the buttons. <laughs> on the circuit board like oh we, st we still do that <laughs> <laughs> cool was there anything else about Autodesk U that we should touch on uh, I think that's it I think that's it yeah that was, that was good alright the moment everyone's been waiting for so risk assessment and risk reduction <laughs> so we got this kind of kooky project yeah Right. And so like risk assessment and risk reduction is a thing that we often talk about in the industry. And if you go to like any standards committee meeting or read a book or whatever, everyone's <laughs> always talking about do your risk assessment and risk reduction. Right. Mm -hmm. They're a le legal requirement in most other countries. <laughs> in the civilized world. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And it's a uh, it's a process um, that we I was going to say enjoy. I mean, I think we actually do enjoy it. Honestly. It is kind of fun yeah. <laughs> to think through all the terrible ways in which people can be maimed by our equipment. <laughs> but the basic process, right, is that we get together and we look at a design and we are or a um, yeah, well, I guess it's just a design or a set of requirements, but usually a design. And we say, like, OK, how many hazards are there? What are their what's their likelihood? What's their severity? And start mapping that out using the the standard charts and graphs that we that we use in here, um, which are all derived from other people's research um, and itemize all of those hazards, go through the process and pick apart the design and say, like, OK, so this is the uh, this is the likelihood that this thing could happen and this is how bad it is. What could we possibly do to um reduce that risk down to an acceptable level. And it's, it's really useful, I feel like, to do it on that sort of granular level where you, you look at, okay, here's this problem, yeah. and now we are going to assign a value of severity and likelihood, and that gets, generates this number. Okay, now what are we going to do specifically to mitigate this problem? And then we reassess the likelihood or the severity after those, those right. changes. And the two things that I often emphasize, emphasize to other people when first talking about it, like if you're going to adopt the process, things that you're, you, you really want to make sure you do is that one, you don't do them in isolation, right? This shouldn't be a single person sitting at a desk thinking about these things because it's that group effort of competent people um, looking at it together that really exposes the most flaws. And I think it also, it leverages the natural human tendency to want to <laughs> criticize other people's <laughs> ideas. <laughs> but in this way, we can use that tendency for good. <laughs> for good. <laughs> um, and two, that you want to document it, that you, it, it really does need to be written down and it needs to be on a formalized form um, so that you have some record of it. And so that if something goes, A, because it, it's good just to capture it so we can all reference it later. But should something go wrong that you miscalculated, so that not so much as a finger pointing game, but as a as a reference to like, what did, how did we uh, miscalculate this risk? What did yeah. we, what do we miss in the process so that we can do that better next time? What got us to where we are? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. 
So I think those are like kind of the two fundamental things that can be a little different for folks. Like, cause A, we don't often, you know, before we started doing a formalized process, I think a lot of times the designer would think about it in isolation. And then also we wouldn't really write it down. And you have like these kind of loose conversations about things. You'd be like, oh yeah, yeah I should do that. We, know, t- we talked about that. <laughs> oh, I forgot to do that <laughs> right. because we talked about it and never wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So anyway, so that's the the process that we employ. So we get everybody who's kind of involved in machine design together. And then we, somebody usually drives it. Like in this case that we're about to talk about, you were driving it because you're looking at, you're ma- managing the project on mm-hmm. this machine. Um, and we all pick it apart. But so, so I'll let you describe the machine because it is kind of a crazy machine. <laughs> yeah. I have here in my notes, it's a one ton blender, um, <laughs> which isn't far from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, yeah, we should definitely put Vitamix as a label on there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Will it plant? That is the question. Um, yeah, so so the mach- so the machine is it's a piece of kinetic art. So an artist uh, came uh, pro- approached a scenic company in which we work with all the time, and they talked to us about this machine because of the inherent risk in it. Because it's it's basically a centrifuge. Um, if you think about like what NASA does when they spin the astronauts and subject them to a bunch of G's, yeah, it's like, like a zero that. G centrifuge. Yeah, but for art, <laughs> right? Because art. Yeah. That's art. Yeah. yeah. Which is understandable. We're, we're up for the challenge. Sure. <laughs> like, as soon as the bid comes back. I got back. your zero G art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. So there's going to be some some uh, show control elements, some lights uh, involved with it. But what we're, we're concerned about this is the machine. So we're, we're uh, the way it's kind of spelled out in the spec is sort of a center-driven turntable, um, which we've done before. But it's, it's running, it's uh, rotating a large truss structure that's like roughly 36 feet long. So weighing in at somewhere between 1,600 and 1,800 pounds. So it's a lot of inertial load, a lot of potential energy. And, and, and so like a turntable, it's spinning like one or two or three RPM. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> <laughs> no, they want it at 30 RPM, which for that kind of swing arm translates to roughly 40 miles an hour. <laughs> That is fast. That is really, really fast. <laughs> that's the, oh, this is, this yeah. is really fast, fast. Yeah. This is, yeah, that's when you're like, oh, we got to, yeah, this definitely needs a little risk assessment. <laughs> yeah. So this thing is whipping around. It's 36 feet, 36 foot arms uh, centered up. So 18 feet hanging off either side, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And at the end, it has strapped to it LED panels. Right. Right. And then they're going to build up a circular wall around this. So at least people can't, if everything goes to plan, nobody can get to the machine, right? <laughs> but Dear God, I hope so. <laughs> but there's like slits, like observation slits through the wall, right? Correct. So you can see the LED screens. Yeah. So you're kind of encouraging people to like come up super close Close to to this wall and kind of like press your face into the glass as this giant whipping machine is spinning around inside. Right. Right. Which is the point at which you like look at the design. You're like, okay, well, they don't they understand that there is some risk. They built a machine guard that the scenic wall is is there to keep people safe. But I think everyone has to on the project needs to buy in that that is one of the purposes of that wall and thankfully it's paramount yeah like, it's it, really it, important <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like we're going to design the machine as well as we can but like when you're starting to deal with those kinds of forces that's just really out of our element in terms of engineering thankfully we're, we're going to be working with a third-party engineering firm and get everything stamped so that makes us feel a lot better about that process yeah. but it certainly helps if your concept is 
good from the get-go it makes the, the engineering process a lot easier and to your point that you just said like also important that everyone buys in and understands like this is just inherently very very dangerous right like yeah. this is not gonna and be i don't think some... anyone has some misconceptions that it's not <laughs> they're like yeah it'll be fine yeah like some wacky wood <laughs> some plywood sweeps <laughs> no no everyone gets it like yeah so when we start looking at it like some of the initial uh we do like a separate sheet for each hazard and one of the initial hazards that you pinpointed was um what happens uh after you try to stop the machine right like hey you can't just stop it right like you you do not want to just throw brakes and try to try to attain a instantaneous stop because that's a recipe for disaster like it's gonna just break shit yeah but let's go let's go through that 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 exercise so yeah. like the reason we can't is it's 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 a large mass that's rotating really far away from our from our rotation point so it has a high inertial load um and so because we're center driving it we're, we're not at a mechanically advantageous place to slow it down um and so you know, there's a, there's a couple ways to to just think about the machine design to 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 mitigate risk. Yeah. So we're we're trying to approach it from okay, it's got to get up to this crazy big speed. Why don't we take a long time to do that so that it's not going to be if something's going wrong in the rotation, you'll notice it before it gets up right up to full speed. Also, then if it were to say something were to go to rise, some something was lobbed in there or something came loose and it starts to, there's a collision, you're not driving it with a huge motor. So we're, we're so we were thinking of sent, running it with like a three horse motor and it takes like two minutes to accelerate. Because right. And that was a big point of just let's get the horsepower down. So there's just not so much power in there. Right. Because right. the downside, as you're saying, right, is that by reducing the horsepower, we can't accelerate so quickly but here is that's kind of an advantage yeah the only disadvantage to that is that we, we, when you go with like a smaller motor you they tend to kind of have smaller shafts and so all the mechanical components kind of follow from there so if we're, we're driving it with to a certain point we can't we can't try and decelerate so we could we could put a small motor and a big brake on there but you can't shear the shaft that's right. going to be important <laughs> to slowing it down <laughs> right because if you do shear, shear, shear that shaft then it's just going to keep spinning yeah then you got nothing <laughs> <laughs> and you got to fix the machine and uh, no one wants that <laughs> right 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 yeah so downsizing but appropriately downsizing the the horsepower letting it take a long time to ramp up and one of the things we brought up in the discussion was that as you're i think you just said but the during that ramp up period of multiple minutes that it gives the the people operating it a chance to hear something weird right because it's so often you hear a problem with the machine before you even see it Right? Yeah, because like, it sounds different when something is going wrong. So if you hear something weird while it's starting to while it's accelerating to speed, hit the e-stop button and let it slow down to stop. Yep. Which brings us to the how how do we stop it then? Right. Exactly. So so it, like in there there would be two ways in which it would slow down if it was just a soft stop like so in queue where we're, where the the drive is going to take over and start to de decelerate the load so the the motor basically turn reverts into a generator and we're dumping voltage and that's going to that's going to create resistance that's going to slowly ramp it down so which is you now high capacity dynamic braking resistor exactly yeah and then if we were if it was an emergency stop then we want to break it a little faster we're still going to have that high inertial load and it's just going to take time um, right. But we'll get the biggest break we break that we can to to slow it down. So that brake's going to clamp on that shaft and pushing it as close as we can to the to the braking strengths with some safety factors is just going to decelerate that probably about twice as fast, but still in the order of like ten seconds at right. You know, at current calculations. Right, and so not an instantaneous stop by any means. No. Right. So if we can't instantaneously stop it, 
then the next thing is like how do we keep people from getting in its way right Right. so we have that yeah so we have that big circular wall around the around the centrifuge um but there needs to be access to the machine obviously for service and maintenance and just checking things and yeah so if you do do hear something weird what do you (laughs) what are you gonna do (laughs) what are you gonna do next you gotta get in there you're gonna have to get in there um and so we want to make sure that it's safe so that there's a door uh, that's going to enter the 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 cylinder um and we want to make that safe so that's going to be interlocked with the safety switch so um so we're going to have a couple sensors that are going to that are going to be fed by various safety sensors right so we're going to like check that the we have an encoder we're planning on having an encoder on the center to see if it's spinning but it's not for speed control or position control like we would normally do it's just to see is this thing moving to detect motion and disallow the door to unlock if there's any motion on that center shaft right yeah and not just that we're we're gonna not only are we going to verify via the encoder that it's not going to be moving we're also going to probably monitor the e-stop circuit so that you have to lock and tag out the the motion controller before you can unlock that door so it's so it's gotta be e-stopped and it's gotta be not moving Yeah. yeah Because theoretically, you could be e-stop, put a padlock on that, and it's still winding down. So both those conditions have to be met. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that sort of. And so, yeah, so that would unlock the door then if those conditions are met. Yep. And it has to. And then that unlocks the door. You can open the door, and now you can walk in to service a piece of equipment, the center rotator. But the next thing that we brought up in the conversation was like, okay, but we don't want it to be possible then to for somebody to walk by literally and see like, hey, this door isn't supposed to be open. Close the door, unpadlock the, the e-stop, right? Because this is not an industrial setting. This is an art gallery. This is an art gallery, yeah. There will be people who, who are not familiar with sneaking automation or the, the inherent risks it poses. Right, and then unlock the e-stop and start the thing up while you're stuck in the center of this trying to service the machine. Yeah. So, yeah. so we don't want that. So that's, that goes <laughs> in the bad column. <laughs> yep. So, so All, every, just as a side note, like every, it's not really a laughing matter, but you have to have some levity when you're talking about these crazy things. But like, so the, the level of severity is from like, m- you know, minor injury <laughs> to death. And every, I think every, maybe, maybe there were one or two that were not, but, everything we've talked about so far and many of the hazards we were discussing the severity of it was just death it's all five it's all five you're like oh jesus these are all so damn serious yeah 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 so like great five cool so death all right at one point we got like most of the way through it and we're like did these all need to yeah no they all need to be fives (laughs) (laughs) couldn't we have one four you're like no they're all they're all they're all death related yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, so so in terms of someone working on the machine, so we at that point you've locked out the e-stop on the controller, which is outside of the cylinder, and then we are also saying that you should be able to lock out the door latch. So the door to the cylinder has been opened. You put a lock on that, so no one can close the door behind you. Then there's going to be an additional e-stop at the machine, so you hit that while you're working on it. That way, you know that in the same circuit you've you've locked out uh, at multiple points, so someone can't release the e-stop, pull your lock, and and then run the machine. Man, this guy is really malicious outside of the cylinder <laughs> yeah. um, but they're uh, new yorkers you know um aggressively and, unhelpful 
Um, and then additionally, we're going to put a, some sensors on the interior to monitor for movement. They wouldn't be aimed at the at the centrifuge, but they're basically like a laser scanner that's going to put out a plane in, in a circle. And so if anything violates that plane, it's gonna, immediately going to kill motion to uh, power to the controller and slow down. Um, and then additionally, there was the thought, I was like, yeah, you still could get caught inside the machine because it, not maybe there wouldn't be motion allowed because you'd have pressed that e-stop. But if someone were to remove the lock and close the door. So there's also a manual release on that uh, safety latch from the interior. From the interior, yeah, so you can get out. Yeah, so that's how we got that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also because those door locks also need to be, um, you know, fail safe in the sense that if the power is cut off, that the doors stay latched, right? You, Correct. Yeah. Um, so you wouldn't want to lose power to that circuit and then have the doors swing open, open while the thing is moving. So it's like it's got to be fail safe, normally closed, but then you don't want to be in a blackout condition and not be able to exit from inside the terror dome. Yeah, it's like that lie you see in the movies when the, the power goes out in the prison and then the doors all just open. Oh, yeah, doors all I open. feel like that's not how they work, <laughs> given my understanding of fail safe electronics. <laughs> like, oh, we should have thought of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn it. We're prison so electrical close. designers are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that was, so we got a pretty good, I think a pretty good scheme in place or a design intent of how we're going to handle that hazard. Um, the next one we came up with was what happens if something becomes loose on that 36 foot long truss that's holding up these um, LED screens spinning around. Um, well, and this might be the, be the loose thing or the not or not, but the, you had brought up specifically the, the tippiness, right? If, the, if something gets loose and starts to wobble on on the truss, right? Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of like tied together in my yeah. mind because it's like once something becomes loose, it's probably going to unbalance the load. Which, based on not having ma built a centrifuge before, but not in a while at least. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a bit. <laughs> but knowing like forty miles an hour, that's a lot of force. And if if it starts to get unbalanced, it's probably going to start to weeble wobble, and then you deal with oscillations, uh, which can lead to overloading mechanical components and component failure and all kinds of not good stuff. Um, so so yeah, so in terms of like things vibrating we, we're going to use like redundant connections so you you know you'll have two bolts where you'd normally have one bolt so you know if one were to vibrate loose you you got another one there to back it up but the biggest thing we can do is just have a, a detailed maintenance and inspection schedule so um uh, thankfully a lot of the manufacturers of components i'm looking at are have pretty good specifications on that based on like duty cycle in terms of like frequency of use the speed at which you're running um and like the inherent vibration that will create will like how frequently you should check the torque on these bolts and right. how how frequently should you you know make sure the grease is still on the bearings and things yeah like that. so yeah which i think it makes sense i mean those are all kind of low tech but very practical proven solutions to keeping things from getting loose and then for the weeble wobble we were looking at potentially inclinometers yeah right? yeah so like something that can read the the tilt on the ends of the of the centrifuge uh so if, we, if it were to become off axis again that would send an electrical signal back to the controller kill the power and decelerate motion um so hopefully you would decelerate before that that wobble turned into a more severe issue yeah um, and then additionally that there, I mean, it's a little cavemanish, but like as, as designed the cylinder surrounding the centrifuge is, is really a machine guard. Um, so, yeah. so making that butch enough that were anything to fly off, that it's going to contact that and stop at the, at the cylinder, not right. Travel past towards anyone. Right. 
Yeah, just make that, I mean, in the extreme, right, which is not case, but like the extreme being like you'd want this thing in a, like a, a rock formation and that, that arm to be as light as a piece of paper, right? And then if you could reduce it to that sort of risk, then you'd be like, well, that's fine, right? Like, so you want no to- No more get, fives at that point. <laughs> <laughs> no more fives, right? So it's like, you just want that sort of relationship between the, the enclosure and the machine. Like make it so that if this thing were to come off and come spinning out or spinning off, spinning off, it doesn't come out. That the the cage around it is is butch enough to stop it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and, and, yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. And the, and the last thing we had on there was <laughs> that that actually didn't occur to me before we had this meeting was what if something enters from the top of the cylinder? What if what <laughs> if one of these ornery that that guy who keeps <laughs> trying to start the machine while someone's in it just tosses something at it while it's running? Yeah, a fire extinguisher was I think the the example that got put in like there'll be a fire extinguisher in the exhibit space, right? So what if he grabs that off the wall and chucks it in, right? Which would be a terrible thing for anybody to do. But there's no there has to be something to stop that right because that could be that it's like a, a missile coming out of it yeah and and the only way that we could think to do that was to put a roof on the thing right which which thankfully again like the, this team's like pretty understanding like that was one of their concepts was like we could do this if this is required from an engineering perspective and i think the engineering will hope will, will guide that um in terms of what, yeah. you know what we need to be to be compliant and safe and and happy about that yeah 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 cool well that was a i think a good uh dive into one of the kookier things that we've seen in a while like i've <laughs> yeah i say a while i'm that Since might be the last thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty kooky that is the fastest machine i think i've ever had to to put any serious thought to and you're like whoa that's that's quick that's a lot of that's a lot of inertia <laughs> yep <laughs> that's scary cool anything else you wanted to add yeah. awesome well, thanks, Harry, for sitting down and chatting through these things. That was a lot of fun. Those were three good topics for today. Thanks for having me. Hope to do it again. Absolutely. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you'd like to hear more or got specific topics you'd want to want us to discuss, please send us an email to podcast at creativeconnors.com. Otherwise, tell your friends, subscribe on iTunes, do whatever you got to do to help us uh, get the, re the listenership up. That would be awesome. And uh, we'll see you next time.